0: As we begin our time in God's Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to worship, to sing praises, to hear from your Word, to uh, pray together and to seek your face. Lord, I pray that as we come to this time of study, that you would open our hearts, that we might believe the truth of your gospel, and that we might go from this place and serve you as uh, subjects of the King, as those who are called to follow the one true and mighty King, Jesus. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at two verses as we uh, begin this Advent season. And it's by God's providence that we've been going through uh, a study of the Apostles' Creed. And we've looked at the different characteristics and attributes of God the Father. And as God would have it, uh, we're going to come to the section on... Jesus on the Christ uh, during the Advent season, during the season of Christmas. And so uh, there are some some attributes of Christ as we build up to who Jesus is in this statement of faith, this ancient ancient creed that we've been studying. Uh, there's some clauses, some attributes that are mentioned that fit so perfectly with uh, the, the story of Christmas that I thought that we would just use this as our Christmas series for the year. And so as we've done so far in our study of the Apostles' Creed, let's begin by reciting the Apostles' Creed together. And if uh, you need it, you can look in your bulletin. In the center of your bulletin is printed the Apostles' Creed. And so we're going to read it together as a statement of our faith and, and also as kind of a guide for what it is that a Christian Should believe. And so let's read this together uh, and recite our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. So as we build up to Christmas, there are four attributes of God the Son that speak to this season. If you'll notice at the very beginning of this clause where it says, And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. There are four attributes that I want to focus on during this Christmas season. There is the Christ. The only Son, our Lord, and then lastly, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So today, we consider the first attribute of God the Son, and that is the fact that He is the Christ. Now, it's common to think that Jesus' last name was Christ, because we say it so much together, that we come to, I think, a lot of people, especially out in the secular world, they think that Uh, that Christ is just Jesus' last name. But Jesus' last name would not have been Christ. It probably was of Nazareth, or if anything, it would have been Ben-Joseph, or son of Joseph is what Ben-Joseph means. So rather, Christ is a title of who he is. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed, so the title is a reference to Jesus' position as the promised Messiah. As the Gospel of Matthew begins by saying this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So why is it that the first gospel that we have in the New Testament begins not with some fantastic story of something that Jesus did, not with some, as as, uh, as as Luke does with his the story of his birth, but it begins with a genealogy and specifically a genealogy that is rooted in two people. A genealogy that is rooted first in Abraham and second in David. Well, Matthew wants you to know right at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus Is of the lineage of these two men because it roots Jesus' story in the promise of the Messiah. He mentioned Abraham to anchor Jesus solidly within the promised line of Abraham. Because if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God promises Abram that he will be blessed, that he will bless him, that he will make his name great, and that he will make him a blessing. But he, at the very end, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he tells Abraham that he will be a blessing to the whole world. That through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And not only does he anchor Jesus in that promise, but he also anchors him in the lineage of David, in which there is another promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises. David that there will always be an heir to the throne of David and that one of those heirs is going to rule over the whole world. So this promised son of David was the great king that all of Israel hoped for. One that was going to be anointed by God to fulfill the promise of Abraham and the promise of David that through this one man all nations would be brought to God That those who had rebelled against God, all the pagan lands, all those that were fighting against God would ultimately be brought into the kingdom of God. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we see this promised man, this promised heir of David and Abraham. We see him as the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, he is the descendant of Judah who will rule over the whole world world. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he is the prophet who will lead his people into all truth. In Isaiah, he is the servant of God who will save his people. In Daniel, he is the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. You see, the Jews believe that this Messiah would fulfill three leadership roles in the nation of Israel. There are three leadership roles that Israel has. They had the prophet, they had the priest, and they had the king. Now, in all of Israel's history, there have been kings who have done priestly things, like David who offered sacrifices, or Solomon who offered sacrifices. There have been prophets like Samuel who acted sort of like a king. There have been priests who ruled like a king. But in all of Israel's history, there was never one man who did all three roles, who was prophet, priest, and king. But yet the Israelites hoped for one day when there would be one man who would be the prophet who would bring the word of God, the priest who would intercede between God and man, and the king who would rule over his people. And they hoped that that one day there would be this man who would do all three roles. And that man would be known as the messiah. And there's one prophecy that I'd like to consider as we look at this man who is the messiah and how he fulfill, is fulfilled in the reality of Jesus Christ. And that is from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. So let's read that together. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Will do this. So there are two points that I want you to consider from this passage today. There is the royal son and the royal standards. The royal son and the royal standards. So, first, consider the royal son. So, this prophecy begins with the promise of a son that will be given to the nation of Israel. And there are four characteristics of this royal son's rule that I want you to notice today. First, this royal son will be a rightful descendant and heir of King David. In verse 7, it tells us that he will sit on the throne of his father, David. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, when the angel comes to announce Mary's pregnancy to, Dave, uh, to Joseph, He comes to Joseph and the first thing he says to Joseph is Joseph, son of David. He doesn't say Joseph, son of whoever it is that Joseph's father was. He doesn't say son uh, of his mother. Instead, he links Joseph directly as a descendant of King David. And in Matthew chapter 2, not only do we have the confirmation of Jesus' lineage as a son of David, but we also see this story, a really neat story, probably my favorite story of all of the Christmas stories, a story of wise men who come from the far east and they come to uh, Jerusalem because they have seen signs in the heavens and they have read ancient prophecies of how a king would be born in Israel, And they come to Jesus in Bethlehem and they offer him gold and frankincense and myrrh and they bow before him in worship because they recognize that Jesus is the rightful son of David. He is the rightful heir of the throne of David and therefore he is the anointed one of God. Second, this royal son will establish his reign in justice and in righteousness. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, and especially if you've read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, then you'll know that there was never a king over Israel or over Judah who ruled in perfect righteousness and justice. Right? I just now am, am reading through 1 Chronicles. And there's some beautiful stories in there. There's some amazing works of God, of course. But you'll find that in every one of the kings that is mentioned in the story of David, in the story of Solomon, in the story of every king of Israel and Judah, you'll find that there are good things that they do, but then there are some horrible things that they do. David is the man after God's own heart and yet he had a man murdered so that he could cover up his affair with Bathsheba. Solomon was the wisest man to ever live, and yet he married pagan women and built idols to their gods. Josiah restored the law of God, but failed to tear down those idols. Hezekiah led the people well, but yet he failed to fully trust in God to defend his people. And yet, Jesus... The descendant of David never sinned. In all of his life, he lived in complete righteousness. He did whatever his heavenly Father commanded him to do, and he did not do anything against the law of God. And he taught what true justice looked like. He rebuked the Pharisees for their hypocritical charity, pointing out that they only made Uh, They only gave to the poor in order that they might get recognition. And instead, they neglected the love for their neighbor. Jesus has established a kingdom of justice and righteousness. He has showed us what true justice and righteousness look like. And not only that, but he has established it through his church so that now through the church of God, we exemplify what true justice and righteousness should look like. Third, Isaiah says that this Messiah's rule will be from this time forth and forevermore. This royal son's rule will be an everlasting rule. Jesus proved to be the Messiah in this way through his resurrection and his ascension. As we confess in this creed, in the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, but we don't stop there, right? We don't say, well, he's dead and buried. Story over. Instead, we go on to say, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. When I recite that in the Apostles' Creed, I can't help but almost, it's like you go down and you come back up. I want to say it "And he descended into the grave. And he rose again from the dead on the third day, right? It's a triumphal thing. He now lives for all of eternity. He is the only Person who has risen again and ascended into heaven. He is the only king, only descendant of David, who actually fulfills this prophecy that he will reign forevermore. Jesus Christ is the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is right now, at this very moment, reigning over this world. Amen. Fourth, Isaiah promises that all of this will come to pass because of the Lord's zeal. I love this line at the very end of verse 7. It says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, these things that God is promising in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, will not be accomplished by human will or cunning. The Messiah, understand this, the Messiah won't be a smooth politician or a media darling. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 says that this Messiah, this suffering servant will be unseemly. He will not be someone that we will want to look at. He is not going to be a a a, a politician with slick back hair or a fancy way of talking or a, 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 a uh, super packed at his back to support his efforts. He will not be someone who, that all the media wants to interview and, and and everybody wants to follow on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever it's called now. He won't be someone that we all look to follow, but yet he will be the Messiah because he will be there by the will of God alone. The royal son will be given by God's work alone. And certainly we see this in the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus was conceived by a peasant woman in the backwoods of Palestine. His adoptive father was a tradesman. At his birth, there was no room for him in Bethlehem. And the interesting thing is, he's a son of David. He's the descendant, the heir of David's throne. And yet in David's city, which is Bethlehem, there is no room for him. So he is born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. Instead of being received by the nobility of Judea, King Herod sought to kill him, even to the point of killing every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem in a frenzied attempt to snuff out his life. Yet in spite of his lowliness, in spite of the disdain of men, Jesus accomplished exactly what he was sent to do, strictly by the zeal of the Lord. It is only by God's purpose, by God's will that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. If it had been by man's plan, by man's design, it would have failed time and again. but it is only by the zeal of the Lord that we are delivered. It is only by his hand that that we have salvation. Right. So now consider my second point, which is the royal standards. At the end of verse 6, Isaiah gives us four names that this royal son will be called. And they all point to these three offices of prophet, priest, and king. So first, this royal son shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And here we find the messianic office of prophet. This son will miraculously reveal the will of God to his people. There's this neat little story in Luke chapter 2 where uh, the, um, the Mary and Joseph take Jesus at the age of 12, likely for his Bar Mitzvah, to the temple. And uh, while they're there, they lose Jesus, right? They, they leave and they leave, accidentally leave him at the temple. And when they rush back to find Him, when they realize it and they rush back to find Him, they find Him sitting with all of the teachers of Israel. And the teachers of Israel are amazed by how much this young man knows of the Scripture. They marvel at His wisdom and His knowledge of Scripture at the age of 12. Later on, when Jesus would preach It says that the people that heard him preach would be amazed by the power with which he preached because he didn't preach as some stuffy scribe that was just teaching commentary from ancient times, but he taught as one who had authority. Jesus could do this because he is the very word of God. He was not teaching law written by other men. He was teaching the law that he himself gave directly to the hands of Moses. He is the very word of God. As John chapter 1 verse 14 says, Jesus is the word made flesh. Second, Isaiah says that this royal son will be called mighty God, everlasting father. So Isaiah promises that this Messiah will be more than just a son of David. He will be the son of God. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus tells his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the father. I am in the father and the father is in me. Jesus is the priest who perfectly intercedes between God and man because he is both fully God And fully man. He can forgive our sins because he has a right to. As the Son of God, he can forgive us as God Himself. He can bring us to God through his sacrifice because he is the perfect Lamb of God, the man who has perfectly obeyed the will of God and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And finally, Isaiah promises that this royal son will be called the Prince of Peace. Jesus has come to bring the rule of peace to this world. Where Jesus reigns in the hearts of men, there is peace. For one, we have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you realize today that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen. That it is because of the wrath of God, it is because of our sins, that the wrath of God is upon us. That through, because of our sins, we deserve judgment and hell. And yet because of what Jesus has done in taking the wrath of God upon himself through the cross of Calvary, we have been forgiven. We have been atoned for. We have been redeemed. And it is because of that work on the cross that we now have peace with the one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who has created us with a purpose. And so through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. But we don't just have peace with God. We have peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Through Jesus, we have been brought together as believers in his sacrifice and in his resurrection. So that we have unity in this church and we have unity among churches throughout this world. We have been united in peace through Jesus Christ. (coughs) <coughs> and not only that, but when we go out into this world, we take the peace of God with us as we go. We should, I should say, we should take the peace of God with us as we go. And so when we go out from this place, we take the love of God and the compassion of God and we bring peace and order and goodness to a world who doesn't know what that looks like. To a world who is seeking for peace, who is seeking for meaning, who is seeking for love in all the wrong places. And yet we have the love of Jesus and we take it with us as we go. And so when we leave this place, we leave in peace because we have the peace of Christ We have the peace of God through Christ. We leave with the peace among our brothers and sisters, and we leave to take that peace into this world. And so may we do that as we leave today. May we take the peace of God with us, and may we leave with the rule of Christ in our hearts and in our lives, and take that rule into this world as we take the gospel with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that we have in Christ We thank you for the Prince of Peace who brings that peace to us through his sacrifice, who brings that peace to us through the work of his spirit, and who has called us to take that peace with us as we go. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in that. Lord, I pray that you would work in us now as we respond in faith. In Christ's name I pray, amen.